and it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. Today, Pastor Elliot ministers from Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, to point out that God's newness in our less than grown-up children looks like them obeying their parents up to a certain point. And that newness in fathering looks like consistency. Please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. And now, Pastor Robert Elliott. New and improved marriage. So those of us who are married, you're hearing this teaching about either standing under or by sacrificing to meet needs. Do you owe your mate any of this? If you do, then make it right, ASAP. Make it right. New and improved marriages have submitted wives and loving husbands. If I had a dollar for every frustrated and dejected married Christian woman who's come to me over 30 years in pastoring, I'd be rich. Second, after new and improved marriages, is new and improved less than grown-up children. New and improved less than grown-up children are obedient to their parents up to a point. New and improved, less than grown up children are obedient to their parents up to a point. Let's see verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. The Greek word here for children is technos, technoi. It was a word reserved for less than grown up children. Children younger than a recognized age of majority. Children not ready yet to function as adults. In modern thought, the way I choose to define a technos, a child that's not fully grown, is they don't yet have their own home. They don't yet have a job to supply for their bills. And they haven't yet picked a local church. Such children have only one God-given responsibility, which is linked directly to being a technos, a less-than-mature adult child, and it's to obey the parents who God has put in the young person's life. Verse 20, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. It is interesting to me, those who are stay-at-home, not-yet-adult children who are listening today, it is interesting to me that the Lord doesn't command you to get straight A's this school year. He doesn't command you to drive cool cars safely. He doesn't command you to wear hip clothes. He doesn't say his will for you is to responsibly use the Internet and your cell phone. He doesn't say your responsibility as a child is to get a part-time job as soon as possible. He doesn't say that he wants you, his will for you is to play minor sports. He doesn't say that it's his will for you to debate your parents. But what he does say, if you're not a fully grown adult and you have parents in your life, that you're to be obedient to them. Now, I said in this point that it's up to a point that less than growing up children should be new and improved in obeying their parents. What's the point that that obedience goes up to? 
Well, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, it says, not just to less than fully grown adults, but to all of us in the body of Christ, we must obey God rather than men. Less than grown-up children are not compelled by God to obey parents who are having a will against the revealed will of God in the Bible. So what about getting baptized and your parents forbid it? Wait. What about committing a crime? Disobey. What about getting saved by trusting Jesus Christ and your parents are against it? Disobey. What about them ordering you to sin in some manner? For instance, lie for them. Is your mom there? Say, I'm not here. Don't obey them. What if they tell you to attend a college and they're going to pay for it, then you attend that college, or you save up money, or you borrow money, and you pay for your own college and go wherever the Lord wants you to go. New and improved less than growing up children are obedient to their parents with the exception of knowingly sinning. If your parents tell you to sin, don't you obey them. Let the chips fall where they may. And if you're a less than grown up adult, and you're a child who has parents, do you owe your parents any obedience that you've been withholding? You change that today. Next are new and improved fathers. New and improved dads don't exasperate their children. New and improved fathers don't exasperate their children. I see this in verse 21. See it with me. Fathers... Do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. What can a father do to exasperate his children? Well, I'll tell you what, whatever that is, it causes those kids to lose heart. It causes those children to be chronically discouraged. It causes those children to want to throw in the towel and quit. It causes those children to lose their joy. It causes those children to have no bounce in their step anymore as they go through life. A father who exasperates his children leaves his children angry, like Karl Marx's dad did for Karl last time in the last sermon, and he birthed communism out of anger at his father's hypocrisies. To understand more about fathers not exasperating their children, Ephesians 6, verse 4 says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't tell them this is how a Christian lives and then fail to live that way as a Christian dad. They see right through it, and it exasperates them. Could that be why some studies say that upwards of 80% of evangelical youth who go to university walk away from their faith in Christ. So new and improved fathers don't exasperate their children. They don't provoke their children. It's nagging that provokes children. It's exclusive fault-finding and never-finding good that provokes children. It's being a hypocrite that provokes children. It is arbitrarily and inconsistently asserting parental authority that aggravates and discourages and exasperates children. 
I like sports, and it's baseball season, and my team's almost out, which is typical for the last 20 years, but a well-umped Major League Baseball game, you have no thoughts about the ump. You don't notice the ump. He has a consistent strike zone. He's not an issue. A godly father is consistent. He doesn't provoke or exasperate his children. Years ago, still with baseball, a father who didn't want to exasperate his children was Harmon Killebrew, a slugger for the Minnesota Twins. Some of you who are little older baseball fans remember Harmon. And one afternoon, he was in the backyard with the Killebrew kids playing football or something, and Mrs. Killebrew opened the window over the sink and said, Harmon, you guys are wrecking the grass. She said, it's all right. We're raising kids here, not grass. We are to raise our kids with encouragement, dads. We are to be new and improved Christian dads. We're to praise them. We're to kindly instruct them. We're to walk a real Christian walk with them. And when we mess up, we admit it to them. When we've sinned against them, we ask their forgiveness. We live with honesty. We live with no duplicity. We're not one person here on Sundays and someone else Mondays through Saturdays. We raise our kids with love and with hope and with humility. We believe that there's no exasperation zones in our family. It's time for answers to your questions. We urge you to take a moment and get a pen and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on. We here at Echoes of Calvary are always excited to receive your letters of support and your questions, which we seek to answer right away and also here on the show. You can send us your letters at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com. Once again, here is Pastor Robert Elliott. Good morning. We are so pleased to have Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, a prophecy expert, in our studio this morning. Good morning, Dr. DeYoung. Well, I'm not sure about the expert, but I'm thrilled to be here with you again. <laughs> well, I'll make that judgment. I believe you are. It makes me think of the woman who came up to the violin virtuoso at the end of a concert, and she said, I'd give my life to be able to play like that. And he said, yes, that's exactly what it will take, madam. Yes. And I know that true. you've devoted a lot of your life to studying the scriptures. Well, it has been a, a wonderful life of study of God's prophetic word. Amen. So uh, the question I have for you is kind of open-ended, but it seems to me that in the course of all of human history that the Middle East has been at the epicenter of all that's happening, and it's no different today. And I'd just like to get your impressions, Dr. DeYoung, about the, the Middle East, its uh, rulers, its countries, its... Uh, geographics, whatever you might like to speak to. Well, you've got to remember Ezekiel 5, 5 says that Jerusalem is the center of the earth. You use the phrase epicenter. I like that. It's the center of the earth and all the nations were 
put around the city of Jerusalem. And that includes all nations all over the earth, but in particular, the Middle East. When you want to understand the Middle East, you have to look at the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. That's key. Understanding the Middle East has to focus on those two particular items, the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. Now, when you do that, you have to recognize, and I believe the book of Ezekiel lays out for us four major trends that I think I can use to answer your question. If not, we'll have to do another program on the (laughs) subject. But let me just suggest there are four major trends that you can find as you study the book of Ezekiel, and that would be Ezekiel chapter 33 through chapter 48, the last 16 chapters of this great prophetic book. The first trend that I want to talk about is Aliyah of the Jewish people. Now, that phrase, Aliyah, is a Hebrew word. It literally means to go up to Jerusalem. And it was used way back at the time of the Exodus when the Lord told the Jewish people, when you get into the promised land, when you're set up there, I want every male Jew to go into Jerusalem at a time In fact, three times a year, the pilgrim feast days, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So you make Aliyah, in other words, from wherever you are, and it doesn't matter uh, about the geography, you're always going up to Jerusalem. Now, that term today is basically referring to uh, immigration. It's the Jews. And out of 108 nations of the world over the last 150 years, Jews Jews have made their way into the land that God promised to give the Jewish people. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 7 through 10, talks about that apocalyptic phrase, the valley of dry bones, apocalyptic, of course, meaning how the Lord would use in four books of the Bible, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Revelation, a apocalyptic phrase or a symbol to communicate an absolute truth. So he talks about the dry bones in a valley that will come together as Ezekiel preaches. Then the skin will cover these dry bones and then they will stand up like a mighty army. Now, the way to an interpretation of an apocalyptic phrase is keep reading the Bible. I was just talking about Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 7 to 10. Verse 11 says, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And so when the bones come together, that's the regathering of the Jewish people. When the flesh comes on the bone, that's the restoration of a Jewish state. And ultimately, when Jesus Christ comes back, the regeneration, that's the breath of life being breathed into the Jewish people. That's Ezekiel chapter 37. But chapter 34, very wonderful chapter. And 18 times the Lord says, I will. I will find my people where they have been scattered. I will gather them together. I will bring them into the land that I promised to give them. I will feed them like a good shepherd feeds his flock. Now, I've only given you a couple of the I wills. 18 times he says it to Ezekiel the prophet. Got to tell you something, Pastor. If he says it one time to me, I believe it, it settles it. But, buddy, if he says it 18 times, we better be paying attention. That's right. And that 
That's exactly what he's doing here. He's going to bring them into their land. A book of Ezekiel chapter 36 talks about the land. In fact, Ezekiel is told to preach to the land. And one of the greatest verses, it was given to me by a rabbi in my office in New York City when I was the vice president of a broadcasting company there. And uh, I was trying to witness to him. And at the conclusion of my conversation with him, he said, look, whatever you do and whatever I do, let me rest assured with you that God does what he's going to do, not because of our activities, but to make certain for his holy namesake something happens. Ezekiel 36, 22. He brings them into the land, and that's what we see happening, and that's what the bottom cause of all the activities unfolding in the Middle East is all about, these Jewish people coming back into a land that God promised to give them. He swore by his name when he gets swayed by by nothing greater, he's going to do that. So that's the first trend I see. The second trend now will lead out to the nations surrounding them, and that would be the alignment of the nations. In Ezekiel chapter 38, over in Psalm 83, and Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 40, it gives a list of nations who in the last days are going to align themselves against the Jewish people of Israel. Let's start with Ezekiel 38. In verse 2, it says Magog. When you go back to the book of Genesis chapter 10, you'll see Magog was a grandson of Noah, son of Jepheth, and he went to establish a nation in a piece of real estate that we know today as modern-day Russia, but also it included the Ukraine. Hello, we're talking about nations in the news today. And then when you go back to Ezekiel 38, verses 2 and 6, talks about Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma. Well, when I was recently in Turkey, picked up an ancient Turkish map, and it told me in the times of Asia Minor, that would be the missionary days of uh, Paul and Peter and all of those that were reaching out, giving the gospel message early on in church history. And they would have to go into what we know as Turkey, and if they picked up a map, they would have seen Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma, the four divisions of modern-day Turkey. And then in verse 5 of chapter 30, uh, chapter 38 of the book of Ezekiel, it says Persia. Well, you remember Persia was the leader of the Medo-Persian Empire. Persia was the name of a piece of real estate until 1936 when that one place called Persia was divided into four states, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. And of course, the Iranians still speak the Persian language. When you go over to Ezekiel, excuse me, to Psalm chapter 83, it talks about in verse 6, the Ishmaelites. Ishmael went to live in one place. Chapter 25, verse 18 of the book of Genesis, he went to live in what we know today as Saudi Arabia. And then in verse 7 of Psalm 83, it mentions Tyre, Tyre and Sidon. That's modern day Lebanon. You go over to Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, it talks about the king of the north and the king of the south. Well, early on in chapter 11 in verse 5, it describes the king of the north and the king of the south in that period of time, Daniel's time, actually 300 years after Daniel's time because Daniel wrote a prophecy about it. But in the context, it describes the geographical location for the king of the north as Syria, the king of the south as Egypt. 
Now, dear friends, if you've been paying attention, I've been mentioning the nations in the Middle East that are very active. As I'm here behind these microphones right now, Russia, Iran, Syria getting ready to try to go into Israel, Saudi Arabia putting together an army of 350,000 soldiers out of 20 nations of the world. Some of the nations I mentioned, other nations added in. That's the alignment of the nations that will come against the Jewish state of Israel. And that will happen in that first period, that six months at the beginning of the tribulation period. The third trend I see And this helps us to recognize when this alignment of nations will take place. Ezekiel chapter 38 verse 8 talks about the Jewish people being in the land and dwelling safely. And then you look at verse 11. It's a military terminology where it says they'll be dwelling safely, actually living in unwalled villages. I would say that the first trend was Aliyah, the Jewish people, then the alignment of the nations, and this would be an anticipation for peace. Because the Antichrist, whom we talked about on an earlier broadcast, he will confirm a peace treaty. The Jewish people will believe he's the Messiah. He has brought peace. They're going to lay down their weapons. They're going to say, the Messiah is here. We don't need to fight anymore. He's going to fight for us. And that's the time when this alignment of nations will attack the Jewish state of Israel. It's all laid out there in the text as you study these passages of Scripture from Ezekiel chapter 33 through chapter 48. There's one more trend that I want to mention, and it's talked about, and we mentioned it, I think, last week when we talked about the millennial temple that Jesus Christ will build. Zechariah 6.12, he'll build the temple and rule and reign from it, Zechariah 6.13. I mentioned that over in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 46, there's two 202 verses, detailed information about a temple that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will build. May I tell you, there's never been a temple nor a tabernacle that would fit the description of Ezekiel 40 to 46. The first temple, Solomon built. The second temple, Zerubbabel built. Herod refurbished it over a 46-year period of time, but that was Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple. The tabernacle, of course, was what the Jewish people, a transportable worship center that traveled during the 40 years of their wandering in the wilderness. And it was set up at Shiloh for 350 years after Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land. But that millennial temple is going to be built by Jesus Christ at his return when he comes back to the Mount of Olives. I've got to give this caveat as we conclude our thoughts together today. There's going to be a millennial temple that's an absolute Jesus Christ will build it as described in the book of Ezekiel. But there's going to be a temple in that tribulation period. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice to cease. In that tribulation period, there's going to be a temple. Jesus Christ confirmed that, Matthew 24, 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet, Daniel, flee, get out of town. That means there's going to be a temple in the tribulation period. 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and the Antichrist walks into the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem at the midway point of the tribulation, and he commits the abomination of desolation. He claims to be God. Remember, 
Lucifer said in Isaiah 14, I will be worshipped in Jerusalem. And that's going to be a fulfillment of that prophecy, but it's indicative of the fact there has to be a temple there on the millennial kingdom. Finally, in the Revelation, it says in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, hey, John, measure the spot for the temple right there in the holy city. Measure it, and there's going to be a temple that we will put up during the millennial kingdom that will be desecrated by the Antichrist. It's a temple that is all prepared for. Every single preparation has been made. All the priests have been selected and trained. They have the Ark of the Covenant. They have every implement they need. They have everything ready. They have the red heifer. All is set for that tribulation temple. There will be a millennial temple. Jesus will build that. But prior to that, the millennial temple will follow the tribulation temple that will be set up, and it's ready to be built at any time. Now, if you look at what I've just talked about, Aliyah of the Jewish people, anticipation for peace, alignment of the nations, and arrangements for the temple. That means that that's all about to happen. And remember, the rapture takes place before all of these prophecies are fulfilled. Wow. Just to see how all the scriptures fit together, to see that truly uh, Jerusalem and the Jewish people and the Messiah in his humanity being Jewish, that's what it's all about. And it's continuing with the perfect plan of God unfolding. Let's pray together. Lord, as we consider what we've heard from your word, with Jerusalem and the Jewish people being at the epicenter of human history, how grateful we are to know from the word of God that the common line, the the plot line of, of history is redemption. It's not science. It's not social justice. It's redemption that a holy God would reach down to reprobates like all of us, Mm. that you would come to us when we could not come to you. And how grateful we are, Father, that we live on this side of the cross to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is your perfect Son and the world's only Savior, and that what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary is enough in the heart of heaven, which is the only heart that really matters. We thank you, Father, that you raised our crucified Savior from the dead to evidence that his payment for sin was totally acceptable to you. Lord, may we live out our salvation with fear and trembling. May we become better students of your word, not that we would merely become smarter, but Lord, that we would become more like Christ. And we pray these things in his precious name together Amen. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio.com at gmail.com that's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684 Nassau, Bahamas and remember everyone needs a savior